Now to take charge of the remainder of services, our pastor, Daryl Henson. Then it did it. Okay. Hey, we're good now. I couldn't help but notice there's a lot of decorations up here today that aren't normally here. I guess somebody finally decided it's time to get something up here worth looking at. <laughs> That's the way it goes, you know. Part of the Feast of Dedication decorations, so that's fine. Well, I heard that last night they began a new year. I slept through the festivities. Some said they heard a few firecrackers go off. And maybe my furnace was blowing air at the time and I was asleep and I didn't care anyway. But uh, I'm sure they had great festivities around the world. And I can't help but think, yeah, we're, we're at the end of 2021, but I doubt if there's anything for them to truly rejoice about because 2022 is going to be a whole lot worse than 2021 was. Things are moving that direction, so they may not be as happy in a month or two as they were last night. We have a fast coming up on the 12th, this being the 1st of January. I'll give you a little warning ahead of time. Uh, the 10th day of the 10th month uh, was the fast based upon the siege that began upon Jerusalem before it fell at the time of the next fast. So January 12th will be the 10th day of the 10th month. The calendar for this coming year is complete. Uh, I just need to make a good copy without uh, scribbling on it and then get it printed for you. So I hope to get that done. Shortly. The last time we came through the book of Zephaniah and down to Haggai, there's a fairly abrupt change of direction and emphasis here uh, from where we have been, starting with Hosea and going through the trials, troubles, tribulations, and sins of, of uh, particularly uh, Ephraim in Hosea, and all of Israel and Jacob and Judah have their moment in these last books we have gone through. Uh, Habakkuk, we saw him sitting in a certain amount of frustration, wondering how long before God begins to intervene, and in the book of Zephaniah last week, God made a statement that he is going to tear down all idolatry 
and throughout the land, everything that is ungodly is going to begin to be torn down. Then he talks about a financial crash that we went through. So as society comes apart and God begins to administer these things, partially through Satan and his demons and the men that work for them, uh, he does give us a warning in the beginning of chapter 2, and I'm going to review a little bit in Zephaniah before we get to Haggai today, because he does say in chapter 2, verse 1, to gather yourselves together, uh, you that have been undesirable, and certainly we were undesirable to God as a church, is the reason he spewed us out, and he is hopefully got now a remnant of about 10% of what was the church that have repented and are becoming desirable. Now, I wrestle with this one myself quite a bit because God tells us to turn to him with our whole heart, and we've gone over those scriptures many times, and how we are to put him first in every way in our lives and live by every word of God and all these things that we talk about. And I have to face the reality that none of us are ever going to achieve and be what it is that we want to be and that God would have us be in this lifetime. It can't occur until our change come and we're made immortal. Uh, as long as we're human, we're subject to some degree to our human nature. And much as we fight it, he doesn't say you have to become perfect. Uh, where it says become you perfect, uh, the word really in the Greek, uh, the force of it is become you mature. Mature Christians. Because perfection has only been achieved by one. <laughs> and he is the only one that ever has or ever shall in this human life achieve it. So we can't do that, but he does tell us if we're to be a part of him, and he tells it to all the churches, to overcome. So he does lay that much on us. We have to overcome. That means growth, spiritually speaking. Uh, he does not expect more of us than we can possibly do. And he said he won't lay on us any more than we can stand. So he is understanding of our frame, let's put it that way. He knows we're still but human. And yet when we're under the pressure of living by every word of God and by turning to him with our whole heart and putting him totally ahead of ourselves, which is getting rid of idolatry, then it puts a heavy burden on us. And it's a burden that we bear. And Paul told us, don't be discouraged, don't be frustrated. We're all going through the same thing. Uh, we will be frustrated, but not downtrodden or not broken or not destroyed by it. Not his words exactly, but just getting the thought out there again. So he is going to make it possible, and I find that the words that come to my mind when I meditate on these things, and upon you and upon me and where we are, uh, there are some words that come to my mind that I pray. 
And those words are mercy, because his mercy endures forever. And he says that over and over and over. Forgiveness, because without Christ's sacrifice for our sins and his blood shed, there would be no hope. So his death and resurrection give us hope. And grace, which is unmerited pardon, we need pardon that we don't truly deserve. Because no human being deserves pardon for breaking God's law. So we come to him to humbly ask for these things to occur. And another phrase, not just a word, but a phrase comes to mind is, in spite of us. I pray that one personally a lot. Help me do the job you gave me to do in spite of myself. Because sometimes, all the time, we have to lean on him, for of ourselves we can do nothing. So he's not asking more than we can deliver in one sense. He's asking more, yes, than we can deliver, but he gives us some mitigating factors where he is willing to forgive and to show mercy and to give us grace in a time of need and to take that which is weak and base and confound the world with it. So he doesn't intend us to stay weak and base. He intends us to grow and overcome and be usable by him. And our own righteousness will get us nowhere. There is none righteous, no, not one. So if you consider yourself righteous, you need to rethink a lot of things. Because in and of ourselves, we have no righteousness. What we are is a deceitful and desperately wicked people. We deceive ourselves as to what we are and our true value and true spiritual standing. We lie about it to God, to ourselves, and to man. Because we aren't righteous. The only righteousness we could lay any claim to would be God's righteousness through us. And hopefully he is working that more and more. He does say in Isaiah 54 that when he draws his remnant together, He's going to have taken their vanity, ego, and self-righteousness away and give them his true righteousness, which comes from above. Because ours is useless. So we have to have his to do work for him. Now that's a slow process, but he's going to make a very rapid process out of it. And what he tells us here when he says, Gather yourselves, you undesirable people. Do it before this decree of destruction hits full force. It's already starting to hit, but before it hits full force and all this destruction comes, he says in verse 3, Seek you the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have worked his judgment. So that means that we have put aside our ego, our vanity, our self-defense, our self-righteousness, and meekly 
are waiting for God's deliverance, realizing in meekness that we don't deserve anything from Him. All we deserve is death, apart from Christ's sacrifice and it being applied in our behalf. So that's why we should be meek. And we have been working His judgment. We've been trying to do things His way. Uh, seek righteousness, true righteousness. Seek meekness. Now he says, you meek of the earth, seek meekness. <laughs> In other words, we have been meek enough maybe to be somewhat converted. We've been meek enough to give up whatever our ideas and our thoughts are and accept his. You know, that's something we have to do. And he tells us, maybe you're not meek enough, seek meekness. You know, Herbert Armstrong said over and over and over again that he was the first one to truly preach the truth of God in 1900 years. I want to make a point on that. Had there been other preachers around? Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of people did some preaching between 100 A.D. and 1900 A.D. And there was a smattering of truth here and there, a smattering of people who kept the holy days, who kept the Sabbath. Here and there, a little bit, through the Middle Ages and on down, and even a few in the beginning of America. So it's not that a word of God had never been spoken, but God had never called anyone to do a work in the magnitude that he did with Herbert Armstrong and to begin something that would carry through these end times and fulfill these prophecies as we go on through from Herbert Armstrong even on past. He was the only voice in the whole world that had the truths that you and I are clinging to. Sabbath, the holy days, uh, and everything that went with it. The mystery of God. Now, there are a few here and there who might have kept some of the holy days. Messianic Jews, whoever. A few who kept the Sabbath, Seventh-day Adventists, here and there. But the body of truth that was revealed to Herbert Armstrong was not revealed to anyone else. The mystery of God, that we are to become God as part of his family, I don't know of anywhere it has been taught by anyone else. Not the Methodists, the Baptists, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Catholics. Name me somebody who understood that in the way that he wrote it in the mystery of the ages. We need to understand that we are part of something very, very important here. That this wasn't done in a corner. And God used that man to restore an awful lot of truth to the world and preach it and to call many out of the world as a result of what he did. Now, I'm not saying anything here so far that you and I don't believe and have responded to. But it's a bit of a precursor to another thought. Isaiah 41, which we read not too long ago, tells us 
what to listen to. Now, this is beyond Herbert Armstrong. His story ended in Isaiah 39, where his sons went out to be eunuchs in the world and who could do nothing. And he died essentially in peace before everything came apart after his death. But here, in chapter 41, uh, he says to the end of it, well, let's say, let's start in verse 26. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say he is righteous? Yes, there is none that shows. Yes, there be, is none that declares. Yes, there is none that hears your words. Now, a new work began in Isaiah 40. And God says that there's nobody listening, nobody's hearing the words that are being spoken. Nobody, not meaning every individual, but most everybody. And speaking of the church, they're not hearing the story. They're not hearing the message. They don't want to hear it. It says, the first shall say to Zion, behold, behold them, the two, plural. And I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings that tells the story of what God is going to do with the end church, with Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses, and the remnant of the church that is going to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. There's nobody telling that story. Nobody but a few, including you, even know where Jerusalem is, much less how to build a temple there or the city of Jerusalem itself. We need to realize something here. Only one. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. They've raised themselves up in Philadelphia, living, united, whatever other little groups there are out there, to proclaim themselves the teachers. And God says it's all vanity and nothing. And they're not going to preach the truth that you need to hear. Is that fairly clear there? What did he say in Malachi? I will send one to restore all things. Just one. And then he's going to bring another to lead in the work of building the temple. Says his hands had begun it. They would finish it, Zerubbabel. And Jerusalem. And then be the leader when they go out to teach to the world. But meantime, those two in Zechariah 4 are commissioned to bring the truth that is needed to the church, the remnant that comes. I think we should begin to get a picture there. Did not the Apostle John say, if they come and bring not this doctrine 
neither receive them in your house nor bid them God speed. Now I understand that when the church came apart, there was an awful lot of confusion, and we went here, we went there trying to find. I looked at a a group or two back in the early 90s, 92, to see what else is there. And I didn't understand any of these scriptures we just read in Isaiah at the time. So I was searching. Well, a lot of people were. And there are a lot of people who still are. But you know what? It is incumbent upon all to find where God is restoring things, to find where God is speaking. And it says at first, just one man, just one. And yet we have a lot of people around the church who are listening to this one, they're listening to that one, they want to find some truth here, they want to find some truth there. And they're coming up with some really strange doctrines. Truly strange doctrines. Like the one God people with, uh, what's his name? Uh, doesn't matter. I know him well. And the others who were with him. It's baloney. It's false. It's a doctrine of demons. Satan does not want to admit to Jesus Christ or Emmanuel. He was defeated by him, but he does not want to admit it, and he doesn't want us to believe in him. So we got this one God thing going, and it deceived a lot of people, because those guys who were preaching that didn't have a clue. They're just like Isaiah 41 said. It's all vanity and baloney, and he only gave us one voice. And if you're listening to three or four or five or six or eight different voices, you are getting yourself in trouble. We need to understand that. Because even here over the years, I've heard of people listening here, listening there, some listening to United, and they had a favorite speaker there. And what he was saying was generally okay in Christian living. But they began to be divided in their mind and pulled away. And now they're gone from us. Still around, but headed into false doctrine one after another. Some really weird stuff that they're finally winding up with. We better pay attention to these scriptures. Because back here in Isaiah, these are the writings of Jesus Christ, not the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus Christ was there. And Colossians says very clearly that without Him, nothing was made. He was the Creator under His Father's power and direction. And no man has seen the Father at all. None. And yet Christ in the Old Testament was eye to eye with more than one individual. 
So I could go on and on and on, and that is the truth that Herbert Armstrong restored, that Christ was the God of the Old Testament. And if you're listening to somebody that says anything different, that's blasphemy. And you'd better get off of it before God pulls you, or you pull yourself away from what God is doing. He's only going to give two voices, not three, not 43, not 217, just two. And he's going to start out with just one. Everybody in the church needs to find out where that is. And they will, very shortly. And 90% of them are going to reject it when they run across it. It's incredible how Satan can deceive us and lead us astray by listening to people who don't know what they're talking about. We had better be very, very careful. We need humility and meekness, not self-righteousness, and think we have new truth or better doctrine than what God is revealing. And God reveals it through one. Now, if you found something, you need to go through whoever that is, and get it established is correct and not go around behind Jones's barn teaching it somewhere else. Because if you do, you'll find yourself on the outside looking in. God will not tolerate that. It's been done around here quite a bit over the years. And it's caused all kinds of problems. You need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, brethren. Part of the solution, not part of the problem. So seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. He might show mercy, forgiveness, and grace, and use us in spite of ourselves if we will be meek and humble instead of thinking and being proud and vain and egocentric and thinking we're the one with the truth. Anyway, he goes on through chapter 3 and talks about the problems in our nation today, which we went through. But I want to pick it up down in verse 11 and review this a little bit before we get to Haggai. Verse 11, And that day shall you not be ashamed for all your doings. Remember how Worldwide used to hide, try to hide behind the college? Uh, I'm gonna, that's what they told me to do. They sent me cards, business cards, as a representative of Ambassador College, not of the Radio or Worldwide Church of God, because they were afraid of persecution. So I was to go out and preach God's truth to them under, in a way, a false nameplate, instead of just admitting we're a church. We were a little ashamed of our doings in a way. I don't know how much it was shame or as it was just, was just fear of persecution. <laughs> but Christ said, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. So prepare for it. Be ready for it. Wherein you have transgressed against me. Now, what he's saying there, too, is you're not going to be ashamed of your sins because you're going to be overcoming and growing and getting away from them. 
You're going to be meek and humble and seeking peace and poor in spirit. So that will be taken away. For then I will take away out of the midst of you them that rejoice in their pride, and you shall no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. The humility and meekness must come. And we can't be proud that we are the only ones on earth who have the truth. Now, as I stated, the truth is only going to come in on one street. But that doesn't give us any reason to be haughty or proud, because what are we? We are nothing. We are the weak and the base being led to do something that God will accomplish because we can't. So there's nothing to be proud or egocentric about. Just be instead thankful. Thankful that God took such as us and began to work with us, and to this day still is, I believe, and will continue to, if we are meek and humble and ready to serve Him and not ourselves. Get rid of the pride. I will also leave in the midst of you a humble and poor people. Key ingredients of God's character are humility and poor in spirit. And they shall trust in the name of the eternal. There's an awful lot going on now that is scary in the world. But we must be trusting in God to take care of us in approaching Him with a meek and humble attitude and pleading for His mercy and love to be shown. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Why do we fear a lot of times? Because we know our attitude's not right. We know we have a sinful approach or a sin or a sinful attitude. So we're fearful. And we look at conditions around us, and that can make us fearful. But our fear is supposed to be of God. Now, if you're sinning, you have, let's say, an unhealthy fear of God. Because you're afraid of chastening, you're afraid of cursing instead of blessing. So it's not the right kind of fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So the kind of fear he's talking about there is the awesomeness of the sovereign of the universe and what he has done and is about to do. So we stand in awe in fear of him, knowing that he holds the keys to eternal life and death. So, so we fear to break his law. We fear to go against him. We fear to go against any of his words because we know that could cost us. So that is a healthy fear. You tell your kid, don't touch the stove. Well, he doesn't have any fear. He's never touched the stove. 
So he reaches out and touches the stove. Now you tell him, don't touch the stove. And he says, okay. Then he has a healthy beer. (laughs) So, if we are not sinning, then we have nothing to fear, right? Because he tells us very clearly in Isaiah 7 and 8, don't fear this conspiracy, this confederacy, this association of nations, which are going to destroy our nation. Don't fear them. Fear me. I am the one who can protect you. I am the one, the only one, who can give you a place of refuge. These others, they can go to heaven or under the sea, and I will find them. They're not getting away. But if we are meek and humble and seeking him and his truth, then he will protect us. So why fear the conspiracy? If God be for us, who can be against us? He's already said, I'll be a wall of fire around you and a covert from the heat and the rain. I will take care of you. Oh, okay. Trust in that. Believe in that. And live as if you do believe in that. None will make them afraid. So instead of being afraid, what do we do? Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. (coughs) You ready to do that? I'm not quite. I mean, I enjoy singing hymns to God. And I like to lift my voice in prayer and singing to Him. But I'm not ready to dance as David danced when the Ark of the Covenant came back. I'm not ready to just break out in absolute joy and gladness. Because we still face a lot of problems, still face a lot of difficulties. And we don't have that yet that would cause the kind of emotional reaction that he's talking about here. There's something that is going to set that off. That's going to cause us to be jubilant. You know, we can't fully fulfill verse 14 right now. We can do a certain amount. And we can have a certain amount of emotion. And we can even be moved to tears sometimes in one of his hymns, maybe. But not like he's talking about here and in Isaiah 35 and other places. In Isaiah 35, he's talking about the desert blooming as a rose and the lame walking and the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and giving us deer legs, youth and strength to be able to build the temple. And that's the kind of intervention, that's the kind of answer that causes you just want to sing and dance and yell and holler. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. Now, when your enemies you see headed down the road, 
You see the Assyrian fleeing before seven or eight men. Or in Gideon's case, 300 men putting the whole Assyrian army, or no, it was Midianite army, I guess, to flight. Oh my, you want to sing and rejoice and dance a little. The King of Israel, even the Eternal, is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil anymore. That's what he tells us in Zechariah. He's going to come and live and dwell in the midst of us. Even in this end time. It's very clear there that it's talking about the time of the two witnesses and the remnant. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not. And to Zion, let not your hands be slack. That is, let your hands be busy. Let them be working. And he'll say that in the next book. Work. Because there's work to be done. So it'll be a time of jubilation, a time of great joy, a time of great blessing, and work to be done under the protection of God. The Lord thy God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. Instead of having nausea and spitting out his church, he's going to take great joy and happiness in it and over it and with it. Now that is quite a change. Have you ever been sick enough to puke? I expect so. And it takes a while, even when you're done, for your stomach to settle down and to get that taste out of your mouth and to be willing to say, Ha, I feel much better now. I think I'll go sing and dance. That takes a while. takes some doing. Well, he's been going through that process. And about 10%, he is beginning to have thoughts of rejoicing in. And when he draws them together, he's going to do just that. It says right here, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly. Are we sorrowful for the, uh, the situation with God's solemn days, his holy days, that we can't all meet together by the thousands and rejoice before God? Are we sorrowful because of the church that was having been torn apart? So you see, we're still, we're still wrestling with some of these things, even today. And we've got to come apart from that and move on to something else that He is doing. And a remnant, about 10%, more than that, all the eyes of all seven churches are going to see what Christ does in terms of signs and wonders in Zechariah. But only 10% are going to respond and be stirred to action and to come and be part of it. So, where we've been and where the church essentially still is, the reproach of it was a burden. End of verse 18. This whole thing has been a burden on us. Frustration and confusion. Behold, at that time, I will undo all that afflict you, 
And I will save her that limps, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. Ninety percent are going to realize too late that God is working with that ten percent remnant. And the story of it will go around to all the nations, all the peoples, wherever people were called. And they will see that, but it will be too late. And then they're going to be thrust into the tribulation and die there as martyrs, hopefully repenting before they die. Hopefully. But that 10% is going to be looked upon by the rest of the church as, oh my, I missed out. I could have been there. I didn't go. Sad to miss it. At that time will I bring you again, turn it around, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth. Now, I think that's speaking of essentially the church, the people of the earth who are converted. Because the rest of the world is going to be an enemy. Times of the Gentiles, the church, the remnant in safety, is going to be hated by everybody. Now, those are broad generalities when I say everybody, but it says they'll all worship the beast. Well, there'll be a few who were converted who won't, but they'll be killed because they don't. So when he says they will all, he means the vast, vast majority. And even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, says the Eternal. So he's going to do this thing and turn it around. He even says in Isaiah 52, the two witnesses won't see eye to eye until the turnaround comes. Until the signs and wonders of Zechariah 3 begin to occur, and that's when he will reveal his servant, the branch. That's when it will happen. Now, with that, we get into the book of Haggai. The name Haggai in Hebrew means festive. Festive. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 14 of the last chapter of Zephaniah. It will be a festive time because God will have turned and begun to bless His remnant people again. I want to be part of that. I don't want to be away from that. I want to be sure that I do everything to be sure I'm part of that group and included in it. Now this is in the second year of Darius the king. In the sixth month and the first day of the month came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel and Joshua, whom he shows very clearly in Zechariah 4, the two witnesses. Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. 
Now see, here he's talking primarily to the church. He's not talking to the nation of Ephraim or any of the tribes of Israel at this point. And he hasn't been in parts of Zephaniah, in parts of Habakkuk, in parts of these other books we went through. He's talking in some of them primarily of the nation, but here and there he intersperses specific comments to the church. And here, the whole direction turns to the church. Now, he does not shut out entirely what's going to happen to the rest of the world, as we'll see here in a few moments, but he's talking primarily to the church. And not only the church, but just 10% of the church. Haggai is not really addressed tonight to the church. Just the 10% remnant in their leadership is what this book is written for and to. They say it isn't time that the Lord's house should be built. Society's coming apart. The Jews are going to build a temple. They don't recognize that there has to be a temple built. Doesn't Daniel 9 show you very clearly that the city has to be built? And in 70 weeks, and not only the city, but there has to be a temple with an altar built because the altar is in the temple. And they will defile the temple and the altar thereof, the beast and the false prophet. So they both have to be built, physically, not just a spiritual church. As I've said 114 times, everybody believes we're supposed to build a spiritual church. Nobody will argue with that. What they will argue with is a physical temple. Daniel is an end-time book and sealed until the end. But Jeremiah, (coughs) the beginning of chapter 9, said he understood by reading Jeremiah that the 70 years in Babylon was coming to an end. That was in the first year of Darius because Babylon was gone and the Persian Empire had taken over. And he realized it had been 70 years. Then he prayed a prayer of deliverance from God, or a prayer that God would deliver his people. And the answer he got was that Jerusalem, the temple, and the altar had to be built. Now, it goes on from there to the book of Ezra, where in the second year of Darius, not the first, but the second Uh, Cyrus or Darius called out for people who would volunteer to come from Babylon and the Middle East over here to build the temple. So it took a while to get organized, to get over here and get it done. And it didn't get done in 70 weeks, did it? It took years. They started building the temple, and then enemies came, and it was delayed for either 13 or 17 years somewhere right in that neighborhood, and finally got done, but not in 70 weeks. So, obviously, the 70 weeks is referring to the end time building of the temple, not Ezra and Nehemiah's building of the temple, and then Jerusalem even later than that. This whole thing took a long time. It was about 23 years, as I recall, 
that they were in building the temple in Ezra with that long delay. So they got started, got delayed, and then finished it. Much more compact here at the end. And Christ makes it very clear that Daniel is talking (coughs) about the end time. Because Matthew 24 clearly says that we are to flee when the abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet stands in the holy place. And he gave that prophecy about the end time. It certainly didn't happen from the time he said it until the apostles were all dead. That was an end time prophecy sealed up until the end. It couldn't have happened in 200 A.D. or 1500 A.D. couldn't have happened in 1975. It wasn't time yet. But it's getting close to time. Very close. So, there is a temple to be built. And that's the first message he gives here. Then came the word of the Eternal by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your paneled homes and this house lie waste? Most of the church today is living in some Relatively nice housing in the United States and mostly around the world. And the churches themselves. This could be both ways. It could be taken both as a personal issue with each one of us, or it could be taken as a an issue with the church. Because Herbert Armstrong had us build church houses over a 70-year period from 1947 until 2017. And I think that's when that 70 years of Jeremiah ended. And not too long after that then, as in Daniel 9, he's going to begin the work of building the temple. Same with the 430 years of Ezekiel. We're past that time now as I see it. So it is not long until these things happen. And I think the fulfillment of Isaiah 7 and that 70, 65-year prophecy is done. Because from 2019, from 1954 to 2017, or then 2019, it was just, just after 65 years in that neighborhood, Ephraim became a very confused nation. And we are incapable of doing anything now, including protect ourselves from our enemies. We've had it. And we're going downhill very, very rapidly. So this could be taken personally or to the church. Our personal houses or the church houses. Some of the remnant have built some pretty nice buildings. They think they're doing the right thing. God says in Isaiah 41, it's all vanity and means nothing. He said that they would be eunuchs out in Babylon, and that's what they are. Jerry Flurry, uh, David Pack, whoever's in charge of living now, and all these other groups, whether there's 13 in their group or 200, I don't care who they are. They know nothing, and God is not with them. And if you're listening to them, you're getting yourself in trouble. 
They don't know what God is doing. I mean, they mean well, but they don't know what God is doing. They don't understand this at all. A few have a hint here and there, but not very many. And they certainly haven't put the story together. So, you live comfortably, whatever church house you're in, and you think, I've found it, I'm okay. Now, therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways. Think about some things, he says. Meditate on it. Give it some serious thought. This is God Almighty, Jesus Christ, inspiring Haggai to say this. You've sown much and bring in little. They've worked hard in some of these groups. Haven't brought in a whole lot. You eat, but you've not enough. There's still something missing, still some confusion, still some frustration. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. We're not satisfied. There are very few people, even in the groups, that are satisfied. You know, I have my frustrations, you have your frustrations. But you know what? I am satisfied. I am satisfied that when I read these words, thankfully, I know what it's talking about. I don't walk out in confusion. I read Haggai this morning, and I felt satisfied because I know it's speaking the truth, and I know what it's talking about. And hardly anybody else does. Now, I'm not fully satisfied because I haven't put on my kilt and run out and danced and sung in the streets yet. But I'm essentially satisfied because I know the things God is talking about here are true and he's given us understanding of them. So if you know that, then you know what to do about it. There was a time after Worldwide Church of God broke up that I didn't know what to do about it. Now I do. That has removed an awful lot of frustration and confusion. You clothe you, but there is none warm. It doesn't completely make you comfortable. And he that earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. All the tithes, offerings, everything that some of these people send into some of those groups, they try to do something with, but it doesn't accomplish anything. It's like having a bag with holes in it, and everything that was given was used, but nothing happened. Like you can take your paycheck... And inflation's going on and this and that. And you go out to take care of your needs and, oops, there wasn't as much there as I thought there was. <coughs> and the same is true spiritually of the groups. None of them know where to go or what to do. Not one of them. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways, says it again. Change your direction then. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house. Get busy doing my work where I'm doing it, not where everybody else thinks they might be doing it. (coughs) And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. 
So here is a work he's speaking of that he is going to pay attention to. The rest of them, all of them, he is not paying any attention to. Can we see that? I'll be glorified in just one. That's all, just one. (coughs) You looked for much, and it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow up on it. God hasn't blessed these churches. And I look at us, and we're pretty small, and he hasn't really, in that sense, blessed us. Not with numbers. He's blessed us with knowledge and understanding of what needs to be done, and what greater blessing up to this point could there be than that? Now, when he begins to do this work, then it will produce a lot. But in the meantime, not even where he is working is it going to show. See, he says, fear not little flock. And there are a lot of little flocks that think they're it. And until he moves to do his thing, no one will know, for the most part, where that is. He is the one. Because it says there in Zechariah 3 that all seven churches will look upon one stone placed before Joshua. That stone is Christ. He's the living stone and the foundation. So they'll all look to him. They won't look to Joshua. They'll look to Christ, who is the one who does the miracles. A man isn't going to do them. Christ is. (coughs) He's the one speaking here. So, I did blow up on it. Why, says the Eternal? Why did I not bless all your efforts? Because of my house that is waste. And you run every man to his own house. Every one of the preachers out there says, I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. I'm the only Philadelphian. The rest of them are Laodiceans. Nearly every one of them says that. Maybe there's a few who take a little different line, but they all think they're Philadelphia. And everybody else is a Laodicean. You know what? I'm not a Philadelphian. Are you? I'm a Laodicean. I'm a reforming one. I repent it when I hope. But the Philadelphia church hasn't even started yet. Until he gets the two leaders together and calls the remnant and forms another group from it, that will be the Philadelphians. Some from Laodicea, mostly, and a few names even from Dead Sardis, the Worldwide Church of God, will be brought together to form Philadelphia. So nobody can say I'm Philadelphian yet. It hasn't even happened. And if they got enough spiritual pride to think they are, then they haven't followed what he told us in Revelation 3 about repentance. So they each run to their own house, do their own thing, but it isn't God's thing. He's only going to send one voice, no more. He says that. And he says, one will restore all things, not 43 or 100, or here a little, there a little, somewhere else a little, but one will restore it all. Now, we've already seen that 
partly in evidence through Herbert Armstrong. The Methodists didn't restore a little, and the Baptists a little, and the Quakers a little. God used one man, and he wasn't bashful about saying it. To be the first one in 1900 years to preach the gospel, most of it. There was still a lot that wasn't understood, but he got the message across to us enough that we began to repent and turn around and go God's way. And then we learn more as we go. Everybody runs to his own house and thinks he's doing the right thing. But he doesn't work, never has, through a lot of different people. Even with the twelve apostles, he had one appointed to be the leader. So there was only one Peter after Christ left. Some think it was James, but it wasn't. Peter recused himself when he had an issue with Paul and Paul with him. So he recused himself from making the decision and let James make it in that particular instance. But it wasn't James that Christ said, I'll make you the leader. It was Peter. So, because everybody's doing their own thing, as it is in the church right now, today. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, the earth is stayed from her fruit, and I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and on the corn, and the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground brings, brings forth, and upon man, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Throughout the church, every aspect of it, he called for a spiritual drought. Amos puts it as a famine of the word, not of bread. There is a famine of the word in the church of God today. Nobody knows where to go to find it. Amos even says they'll go from the coast to coast to the north and to the east and won't find it. Southwest is the only place it can be found. Herbert Armstrong was in Pasadena in the southwest. And that's where God is going to do the last work is in the southwest, Zion and Jerusalem. That's where it's going to be. And they don't know that. So they don't know where to look. Okay, then verse 12, God says, I'm going to flatten it all, and you're not going to be producing anything. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Eternal their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Eternal. So a remnant is going to come. And God says that they will hear and they will fear. Then spoke Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Eternal. So when he calls those people and stirs them to come, I will be with you. He already said in Zephaniah and in Zechariah, he would come and dwell in the midst of us. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and the spirit of Joshua, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work. 
in the house of the eternal of hosts, their God. So, some are going to respond and come and do what God wants done. About a 70-week job. About a year and 18 months or thereabouts. It's going to have to be done pretty rapidly. Not much time left when this starts. In the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the year of Darius the king. Now he gives some dates here, and I don't know what they mean. Uh, They might someday mean something particularly. But this was just showing a time sequence that is pretty close together, maybe all that this means. It may not be that those dates will be replicated here at the end, even as much of Ezra and Nehemiah are not going to be replicated. The time frame is too short. Things cannot be the same. Uh, so he shows this happening in a relatively short period of time, and Daniel tells us it's 70 weeks. So here he compacts it and makes this message given over a few months. That may be all that is there. There may be more to it than that. I don't know. But it is a quick thing. And then in the seventh month, the twentieth, first day of the month, that was the, that'd be the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles on the calendar, came the word of the Eternal by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing. We had a beautiful building there in Pasadena dedicated to the great God. Gorgeous building. And we had a church that met there. Pretty nice church, but not doing everything God wanted in the right attitude. So it got spewed apart, and that building got sold, went away. God isn't there anymore. There's nothing to draw him there. He's gone from it. Now, what is about to be built is going to be built in a finer way than that. He says down here in verse 8 of this chapter, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Eternal. He's going to show through Cyrus his treasures, his gold vessels, uh, gold and silver, and they're going to be used in the temple. I have no doubt of that. Why is it mentioned in that guy if it's not tied to Isaiah 44 and 45? And here it says the glory will be greater. I think both physically and spiritually. They both have to be better. That's why he blew it apart, spewed it out, so that it might repent and come back in better spiritual shape than when he spewed it out. So it has got to be better spiritually, and it will also be much more magnificent physically. And there will be some old people around who saw it. So this isn't talking about Herod's temple. This is talking about worldwide church of God and some old people who are still around who will be able to compare one to the other. Not very many. Some old men. Maybe some old women as well, but it's primarily aimed at the men who would witness it. Who's left? Okay, 
you look at it, and there's a lot of work to do. It's going to be a challenge. So he says, be strong, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Eternal, and work. Now, when it says people of the land, again, (coughs) it's not talking about the nation. Just the converted remnant that has been called, who are the only people of the land who are doing this. That's who it's speaking of. They've come from all over the land to come get this work done. So they've been from all over this land and around the world, north, south, east, and west. And he says again, be strong and work, for I am with you, says the Eternal of hosts. Don't dilly-dally around. You only have 70 weeks. Get the job done. Uh, Don't let your hands be slack. Be strong and work. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear you not. Just like when you were gathered at the Red Sea and you saw the Pharaoh's army coming and I delivered you. I'm with you the same way, so don't fear. I will take care of you if you're meek and humble and not proud and vain. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. So this tells you right here, it's an end time prophecy. He hasn't shaken the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Hasn't happened. From the time this was written till today, it hasn't happened. But it's not very far away today. This is an end time prophecy. And it is at that time he'll fill this house that will be built with glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the eternal host. They will be used to do it. And then it says there in Daniel 11 that the beast and the false prophet are going to come in and they're going to take over and then they're going to think the silver and gold is theirs. Like the Philistines thought the Ark of the Covenant was theirs. And then they realized, I better get rid of this thing. And send it back to Israel. And the beast and the false prophet about the time Christ takes them by the nap of the neck to throw them in the lake of fire are going to say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. The gold and the silver is his, and he's taking it back. And my, it's getting hot in here. The glory of this latter house, he repeats, shall be greater Then the former says the eternal of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, says the eternal of hosts. There will not be peace in the church until this occurs. There will still be confusion and frustration and infighting and rebelling and people leaving and coming and going throughout the church until this faithful remnant comes together and there he will bring peace. All rebels will be expelled. In the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the year, second year of Darius, came the word of the eternal by Haggai. That was just uh, this past Tuesday. 
as far as the 9th and 24th, and immediately followed by the, uh, the Feast of Dedication, dedicating the temple. So we're in this period of time right here that he's talking about as at least a symbol, whether it's literal or not, we shall see. Haggai again says, verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. If God hasn't made something holy, you can't make it holy. If God didn't make Sunday holy, the Pope can't make Sunday holy. Even if you're righteous, you can't make anything holy. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest said, yes, it shall be unclean. So the point is, you can't make anything holy but you certainly can make something unholy. Everybody is capable of that, aren't we? The priest answered, it shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Eternal, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Now, he's talking here to the church. Doesn't Malachi say all the tables were filled with vomit? (coughs) So, the whole thing is unclean. He's going to start cleaning up one place. One only. It's the only place you can go. He made that very clear. We've already read it today. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the eternal. So before the building gets going, he said, think about this. Since those days were, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat for to draw out fifty, there were twenty. I smote you with blasting and mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet you turned not to me, says the Eternal. Now he said he caused the spiritual famine back here in verse 11 of the first chapter. Then he reiterates that and says, You've turned that which I had built to be clean, you've turned unclean. Therefore, he, being holy, spewed the unclean out. So he said, you weren't doing very well. I smote you with blasting and mildew and hail and all the labor of your hands, and you wouldn't turn to me. Ninety percent of the church will not repent. They're going to remain unclean. Ten percent will repent and return. Well, he's laying down the conditions here for blessing those people is what he's doing. Don't touch the unclean thing. Isaiah 52 says, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. 
I know I'm going over time. That's okay. Don't worry about it. So he says then, turn to me. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the month, ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. So something has to be the symbolical date, or whether it's a real date, we don't know. <clears throat> but from before one stone was laid on another, the foundation was laid. Remember what he told Zerubbabel? You've laid the foundation, your hands will finish it. Zerubbabel hasn't laid one stone upon another yet. He's laid the foundation spiritually with the church. But he hasn't done any more toward fulfilling Haggai yet. So then he asks the question, Is the seed yet in the barn? As yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree has not brought forth? Nothing has happened yet. He says that it will, but he says, you look around and nothing's happened. When's this going to happen? Isn't that what Habakkuk said back here? Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. But I'll rejoice in the joy of the eternal, and he will make, give me strength. Doesn't he say he'll make us strong and to be strong? Habakkuk's saying the same thing that Haggai is. You're getting together. I'm drawing you together. I've told you to work. But you haven't been blessed yet. All right. From this day will I bless you. And again, the word of the eternal came to Haggai in the 24th day of the ninth month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, speaking to him alone here, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, before, in the preceding chapter, he says, in a little while, I will shake them. Then he talks about building the temple and causing the fruit to begin to appear. And then he says to Zerubbabel, now I'm going to shake it. So this has to be finished, and then the shaking is going to start. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Like in Gideon's situation. They'll kill each other in confusion. The two witnesses are going to cause a certain amount of this, even though the 42 months of the times of the Gentiles will be in effect. Sending plagues wherever and whenever they wish. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, will I take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Eternal, and I will make you as a banner, a flag, a signet, for I have chosen you, says the Eternal of hosts. So that's the time, then, that the two are going to go and preach against the world and bring all kinds of plagues and troubles upon them if they don't listen, which they won't. So he shows here in Haggai that he's going to start building the temple. People will come, and they will work, and they will do as he says, and that this will happen. <coughs> 
and the fruit will begin to be produced finally. So it's a very encouraging book where it turns the attention to the church and away from the nation because the nation's pretty well had it and is going down very rapidly and the work of the church is going to begin in earnest. This is followed up in the book of Zechariah, which we don't have time for, and I didn't quite have time for this today, but that's okay. We don't have anything else to do sundown anyhow, so uh, I know your mind can only absorb what your be kind can endure, but I didn't speak much longer than an hour, actually. So, that's it for today.